Uh, we are the Ikers, Jeff and Emily, and we'll be reading today's passage from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, 21 and 22, and chapter 4, 1 through 13. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, church. My name is Matt Ortiz. If you're new here and we haven't met, I would love to meet you. Please uh, introduce yourself uh, to me if I haven't chased you down first. And uh, we, if you're new here, we want you to feel uh, like you're part of the family, that you're welcome here. Um, and if you're looking for a perfect church, we're not it. <laughs> we're a family like any other family with our struggles and our weaknesses. But we love each other, and we love Jesus, and we want to serve each other, serve you, and serve him well, and to do that uh, together. As Pastor Josh uh, mentioned, um, it's been a pretty rough go uh, for our little church family. It's been a lot of suffering, and I don't just mean as, as an organization. I mean with individuals and families. Uh, meaning if, if, uh, if you're suffering, if you're struggling, we suffer and we struggle with you. And there's been a lot of people who have been going through it, and it's been pretty, pretty dark. We're between series right now, and when we're between series, we usually do what we call a church life series, where we address a particular topic or issue or theme that we believe to be timely for our church. So, 
You know, I was reviewing an old mission update that I gave a few weeks ago when I was talking to you about how our church was doing as far as the mission is concerned. And during that mission update, I recalled a, a famous uh, Sunday school song that's been around for decades, and it's called The Joy in My Heart. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. To stay, right? And it wasn't part of the original lyrics. One of the things that I was telling you last time, uh, a while later, I don't know when, uh, some well-meaning person added a line. I think it was Jacob over here who added it. And it goes, if the devil doesn't like it, he can what? Sit on attack. That's exactly right. Now, I am all for mocking the devil, for sure. Um, at the same time, I, I think we need to be careful to not think of the devil as a pesky little cartoon character in a red suit with a tail and a pitchfork, you know, getting into uh, or just causing mischief, right? The devil is not a cartoon character. He is powerful, he is evil, and he wants to destroy you, and he wants to destroy your children, he wants to destroy your relationships, he wants to destroy your relationship with God, he wants to destroy your relationship with church, he wants to destroy your mission. Now let me tell you something. I gotta tell you, even though I believe all this stuff, it still feel, feels weird for me to say this stuff out loud because we could talk about God and the angels and Jesus and all those miracles and creation, and it's all very natural and everything, but when, as soon as you start talking about like the devil, the devil and, and demons, it can feel a little weird. Like almost as if you're trading something that's not real as, as real, and then you think you're sounding superstitious, or when somebody else is talking about it, they're sounding superstitious. But this is real. There's an evil one who wants to destroy you in God's creation. The most obvious way he tries to destroy you and creation is through causing pain and suffering hitting you where it hurts the most, like the worst kind of sucker punch. You know, we see this all throughout the scripture, but we especially see it in, in Job. He will make you sick. He will take away your livelihood. He will inflict tragedy to end the lives of those you, close to you. Jesus says this thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. And our little church family has endured quite a bit of that lately. It does make me look at all the inflictions that my wife has endured a lot differently. It's just been bizarre. And you've been through your own stuff. So his most obvious way to destroy you in creation is through inflicting suffering and pain. And his other strategy is extremely sinister. On top of all that, 
He is a master manipulator. That is part of his strategy. It's a manipulation. And he wants you to think, to be convinced that Jesus, who he is and what he's done for you, is not enough. He wants you to be convinced that he does not love you, that he's not in control, that he's not powerful. He wants to make you discontent. He wants to make you think that you need something more. He wants your heart hardened. He wants for you to be bitter. He wants you to be apathetic. He wants you to be cynical. He wants you to be discouraged. He wants you to be hopeless. And on top of all of that, the evil one wants you to think that it's your spouse's fault or your friend's fault or your parents' fault or your neighbor's fault or your church's fault. He wants your relationships to either blow up or just wither and die. Either way, he's good with it. He's good with it because he wants you to lose sight of your purpose in life. He wants you uh, to be off mission. He wants you to not love others, but for you to be suspicious of others. He does not want you to glorify God and enjoy him forever. He does not want you to read his word. He does not want you to pray. He does not want you to advance God's shalom, God's peace. He does not want you to proclaim the good news of Jesus because it is the power of God under salvation. He does not want you to think that showing up every Sunday to worship Jesus and to bless others, he doesn't want you to think that's healthy, that it's good for you or for your family or for your church family. He wants you to think engaging with the church together to worship on Sundays and throughout the week is a nice option if you happen to feel like it and don't have anything else you'd rather do. He does not want you to love God. He does not want you to love your church. He does not want you to love your neighbors. He is evil. He is powerful. He wants to destroy God's mission by destroying you and your brothers and sisters in Christ and your relationships. This is no fairy tale. This is no cartoon. We can't play around like that. We have to treat it for what it is. We have to take it seriously. This evil is real. And I think most of you feel it right now. You just do a quick assessment of your own heart, your own family, your own neighborhood. Check the local news, world news. That's the bad news. And it's very real. And we have to treat it that way. This is why we're desperate for the good news. We are all desperate for the gospel. We are desperate for King Jesus because he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? 
He lived, he died, he rose again to give you life, a life on mission, a life to glorify God and enjoy him forever, a life of leading people to and through, a life-changing relationship with Jesus and his family. Jesus says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but he says, I've come that you may have life and that you may have life to the full. I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. King Jesus is leading the charge in the battle, and he has called you to join him. He has guaranteed victory through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. And he is calling you to trust him today, every day, especially in your darkest hour. He's calling you to live out your faith in response to his sacrificial love and his grace, in response to his truth. This is what gives you confidence in the battle. Your king is fighting for you. I want you to know that this morning. In this section of scripture, we see Jesus in a battle in the desert. And in the Bible, very deliberately so, the desert is often a place of testing and tempting, a spiritual struggle, a place where there is a battle for your soul. There is a battle, and it's raging right now. You know this is happening, and you're in it. You're not just a bystander. You're in the middle of it all. And your life is being shaped by how you respond to that battle or how you don't respond to that battle. So this passage tells us what we need to know if we're going to experience any kind of victory. And if you're taking notes, the first thing you need to know is this. That the battle is all of life. It's all of life. It's not just when hard times come into your life. There's a battle going on even, in, even when everything seems fine, when it seems like your life is, you know, just full of sugar and spice and everything nice. When did Jesus have this battle when, that, that we just read about? It, read about. it was right after one of the high points of his life, right after when Jesus was baptized and the Spirit of God descended upon him. And what did God say to him? Verse 22, he says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This right here is an incredible affirmation, an incredible declaration. He is, God the Father is affirming Jesus, that Jesus is his unique son in whom is all of God's joy. And then what happens? Jesus is in the desert in a battle for his soul. Here's the point. We must be ready for the battle in hard times and good times. There is never a time, even when things are going good, yeah, even things are going well, you know, it seems like sa smooth sailing, there is never a time when you are not desperately dependent upon God. All of life is a battle. 
You know, most people think, you know, if I'm good, if, if, if I just obey the rules and the biblical principles, if I don't mess up, then I shouldn't have any problems, right? I, I can avoid the desert. I can avoid the battle. Well, let me tell you something. Jesus lived a perfect life and suffered more than anyone else. So there goes that theory. All of life is a battle. For example, I think this is a good example. Take honesty. Honesty is the best policy. Right, Jacob? Right. If you don't tell the truth, what happens? You get into all kinds of trouble and suffer. But if you tell the truth, what happens? You get into all kinds of trouble and suffer. Right? You see that? See, whether you suffer for the right reasons or suffer for the wrong reasons, you will suffer. Because all of life is a battle. If we don't understand this, then guess what happens? Your hard times become even harder. You'll, you'll, if, if you don't understand that all of life is a battle, you, you'll experience a double dose of pain. Like you'll go through hard times and then, you know, you'll beat yourself up because, you know, I didn't obey the rules or whatever, right? You know, I'm a loser and all that kind of stuff. And, and the devil likes to use partial truths to just mess with your head and heart. He doesn't give you the whole truth. And, and here's the thing. If things get all messed up, if you don't blame yourself, then who do you blame? Somebody else, right? You blame other people. And that's even more destructive because you destroy relationships and you cut yourself off from the community that you need. All of life is a battle. Next. This battle is between two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of evil. Now, do you know what is at stake here in this battle? What is at stake here is your allegiance, all right? What is at stake here is your loyalty. The devil tempts you to gain your allegiance, to gain your loyalty to his kingdom. Even if you're not consciously doing that, it's what he's up to. While God uses the, the, the temptation in the desert to strengthen your allegiance, to strengthen your loyalty to him, the creator of the universe and who sustains it all. It's one kingdom or the other. Look at Jesus, chapter 4, verse 1, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He was led by the Spirit in the desert. The desert of temptation was not God's part of, it wasn't part of God's creation. It's a result of the fall. It's a result of evil. But God uses the desert to strengthen your allegiance and your loyalty and your love for him. And Jesus was in the desert being tempted by the devil to, to undermine his allegiance to God. I don't know, maybe the church is new to you, um, and you're just checking it out, or you're, you're coming back after a long time, and, and you're kind of understandably 
maybe suspicious or cynical or have a lot of questions, and you might be wondering now, man, this, this guy who's yelling and sweating and spitting up here, he, he's crazy. He believes in the devil, and I do. And the reason I believe in, uh, that the devil exists is because Jesus did. And if you don't, I still think that you can benefit from this, this message. I told you before, in the early 1900s, people were convinced, okay? This is well documented. In the early 1900s, people were convinced that by the end of the 20th century, evil wouldn't exist anymore. People believed that. That's why World War I was called the war to end all wars. It wasn't. Then came the Holocaust and World War II and ethnic cleansing and terrorism and the legalized killing of over 60 million baby girls and boys in our country alone since 1973. And you know what? Today, more and more thinkers, even irreligious, non-Christian thinkers and philosophers, they are acknowledging that evil not only exists, but that evil is powerful, evil is intelligent, and evil is determined to destroy. And most people, Christian or not, will agree with that at least. And if you agree with that at least, now you're this close to acknowledging that behind all evil is a person. A person that the Bible calls the devil, or Satan, or Satan. But even if you don't believe that, I think we can agree that we... We cannot solve the problem of evil in our own home, our own neighborhood, and around the world. I think we can all agree we can't solve the problem of evil through education and through self-help programs or better living conditions. There's nothing wrong with those things, but it's not enough. Not by a long shot. Evil is too powerful, evil is too intelligent, evil is too manipulative. We don't stand a chance. Now, in a battle, it's important to see the big picture. If you don't see the big picture, it gets worse. You know what? If we blame other people for our problems then we are going to make other people our enemy. Even if those people have declared us, even, you know, your political opponents or whatever, has declared you their enemy, the way you destroy your enemy, Jesus teaches, is by making them a friend, by loving them. That's how God's kingdom works. God is in the process of renewing humanity by renewing his creation, especially those created in his image. And when we treat people like they are our enemy, then we are giving up our theological conviction that people are created in his image. 
You can't have it both ways. You can't be selective. You're made in God's image because you agree with me, but you don't agree with me, therefore you're not created in God's image. You're my enemy. This is the manipulation of the evil one. This is, this is the, the, the world's system. God's called us to be different, to be a counterculture, to be set apart. If we see others as our enemy, that we've been, been manipulated, they're not the real enemy. In fact, they are in a battle themselves, and it's not really with us. It is with the real enemy. If you see the big picture, you won't blame others. Also, seeing the big picture stops you from being self-absorbed. You know, what's wrong with me? Why can't I fix it? I'm an idiot. You know, this is where I live, okay? But when I see, or the, by God's grace, when I see the big picture, I realize, you know what? There is actually something going on here that's bigger than me. I'm involved in a cosmic battle that's waging all around me. It's important for you to see that. You know, I remember about 10 years ago, whatever, uh, we were living in National City, and there was a season when our kids, you know, they were little, they were in bed. And there was a season, a lot of evenings, my wife and I just had this major, like, communication problem. It's like what we were saying, there was a filter that was getting translated into some other meaning to the other person. And it sounded like I was being accused, and then I was being defensive, and that's not what was happening at all. And then we went in to see my mentor, Dick Kaufman, who's just like a straight-laced, level-head Presbyterian. And he reminded me of spiritual warfare. A Presbyterian reminded me of spiritual warfare. He's a biblical Presbyterian. And once we remembered that there's spiritual warfare going on, it was like the light bulb went up. Duh! We're not in competition with each other. We are not each other's opponent. We are one. And we fight the evil one together. It's us and God against the evil one. And before we even got out of the hallway, there was a couch there, and we just sat down and we just prayed. And just having a perspective on, on the battle changed everything. I want you to see that this morning. Whoever you think is your enemy is not your real enemy. Stop focusing on that. Remember the big picture. Otherwise... Evil one's just going to create more and more enemies. When we see the big picture, it helps you to see that you need God. And that God is with you. And he can use this battle to strengthen your love and your loyalty to him because it is the best thing for you. Instead of focusing on ourselves or who we think is our enemy, we focus on God and, and how he wants you to respond to who he is and what he's done for you. Next, the battle is focused on three battlefronts. 
The battle's not just out there, it's in our hearts. The battle line is drawn down the center of our, our heart. The devil focuses attack on three key areas. You know, he'll focus on first, your passion. In other words, what do you live for? Verse three, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus was hungry, but Jesus also knew that the issue was deeper than that. The issue was, what will he live for? What will his passion in life be? What will motivate him? What will control him? What will set his priorities? What will, it, will it be having his needs met? Is that the most important thing? Or will it be his passion for God? Jesus knew what was at stake. Verse 4, Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He's quoting Deuteronomy, which goes on to say, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus says, my passion in life, the driving force for everything I do is for my Father. So let me ask you, what will you live for? What are you living for? If somebody did an assessment of your life and your priorities, how you spend your time and your energy and your money and your strength and your efforts and all that, what conclusion can be made as far as what your passion is, what you're hungry for, what controls you? Now, here's the tricky part. It might be, functionally speaking, consciously or subconsciously, your highest priority may be family. Well, that's a good one, right? Or maybe it's work, contributing to society, or your friends, or your love life, or success, or approval, or comfort. All good things, right? But when those good things become the one thing that you live for, even functionally, you might say, no, God's more important to me, but functionally, these other things have become important, more important to you. If that's the one thing you live for, you end up living for the kingdom of evil instead of the kingdom of God, because it's one or the other. God calls us to seek first the kingdom of God. Right? That is the issue in the desert. The question is, is he worthy? Is he enough? Or do you need something else to be happy? To feel content, to feel whole, to feel complete? That's one battlefront. Second, Battlefront, your mission. Why am I here? Verse 5. And the devil took Jesus up and showed him all of the kingdoms of, of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then, Jesus, will worship me, it will all be yours. What's the temptation here? Ultimately, the temptation here is, is Satan, Satan is saying, you can have your glory, you can have your splendor without the agony of the cross. Satan is tempting Jesus away from his mission. You know, what if Jesus had given in to this? No cross, no salvation, we'd all be lost forever. Verse 8, and Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus says, I choose 
the cross. That is why I am here. It's my mission to suffer and die and to save God's people and then enter my glory. And let me tell you something. That's the issue for you too. Do you seek the crown without the cross? Do you live for your own glory? Are you willing to serve others even when it means you suffer? Are you willing to serve others even when they don't appreciate you or even when they criticize you or even if they don't, just don't even notice? Do you put the needs of others before your own? See, your allegiance will be either to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of darkness. It's going to be one or the other. And let me tell you something. If you drift, you don't usually naturally drift into serving the kingdom of God. It's usually the other way. That's the second test in the battle. Why am I here? Third, your identity. Who am I? Verse 9. And, he, and the evil one took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now the temptation here is to test God. Jesus is hungry in the desert, and the devil comes to create doubt. That's what he does. Are you sure you're the son of God? Are you sure that he loves you? If God loves you, then why is he letting this happen to you? I mean, Psalm 91 says that he'll protect you. Why don't you test his love and see if he rescues you? Verse 12, Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus is saying, I don't have to demand that, that God proves his love. I know that I am God's son, and I know that he loves me because he said so, and I know that I can trust his word even when I'm in the desert. And it's the same issue for you. When you are in the desert... The devil comes to you to create doubt. Are you sure that God loves you? Then why is he letting this happen to you? And so often we test God's love. You know, God, if you really loved me, then, then you would change me already. If you really loved me, you would heal me already. If you really loved me, you'd give me a good spouse. If you really loved me, you'd get me this job. If you really love me, you wouldn't let this, that, or the other thing happen to me. You know, this temptation goes back to the garden where the evil one said to Adam and Eve, did God really say that he wants the best for you? You should decide for yourself what is good and bad. Yeah, God says, you can trust me. I proved my love to you. Just look at the cross. I don't care what else is getting whispered in your ear. It all gets canceled out. When you look at the cross, I have proved that I love you. You may not understand what's going on right now, but look at to the cross. That is proof that I love you. I live for you. I died for you. I rose again to give you new life. It is the truth of the gospel that cancels out the manipulation. 
Those are the battlefronts. And let me tell you something right now. I cannot end this sermon right here and say, all right, head out, be strong, muster up more faith, be more disciplined. You're strong enough, you're good enough, you can do it. Amen. Um, I could try to pump you up with that. That is incredibly incomplete. There is no power in that, and the truth is, you are not strong enough. I am not strong enough. We're not strong enough on our own. We can't win on our own. If you have any understanding of yourself, any understanding of your own heart, any understanding of how powerful evil and manipulative evil really is, you know that you need a deliverer. So last, the battle for your soul has been won. Jesus won it for you. The battle's still raging, but Jesus won the battle for you. He won it with the word of God. You know, Jesus responds, so this is often pointed out, he responds to each temptation by quoting God's word. Jesus knows scripture so well. He is just soaked in scripture so much that, that it comes to him immediately. It's like a knee-jerk reaction. You cut him, he bleeds scripture. That's what we see on the cross. That's who he is, even in suffering. You know, when I suffer, sometimes prayer and, and scripture come out of my mouth, but other times, other words come to mind. Because I'm focused on me. And then I lose gentleness and I lose patience. And I blame other people. Well, if they would just stop doing this, everything would be okay. If they just start doing this, everything would be okay. That's manipulation. And I took the bait. So I thank God for his word who contradicts me gives me eyes to see his truth, cancels out the lies. That's why we gotta be so passionate about the truth of God and his word and that it's all about who Jesus is and what he's done. And thank God for his community, whether it be in marriage or friendship or, or the church, to help us, to help remind us of God's truth. In Jesus' moment of greatest suffering on the cross, he quotes Psalm 23, my God, my God, why have you deserted me? Jesus even processes the wrath of God with scripture. Even then he trusts his father and he says, into thy hands I commit my spirit. That is a declaration of trust. Right after saying, my God, my God, why have you deserted me? Jesus was so filled with scripture and the wisdom and the beauty and the grace of God that even on the cross he trusted in God's love for him. Even when it didn't make sense to anybody else, how could anything good come out of the execution of who we thought was our Messiah? How could anything? You can't believe it. No good can come out of that. Don't tell me God works everything together for good. It's not true. But it is. We just can't see it. He proved it through the resurrection. 
the worst thing in the world became the best thing in the world. And if, the, if that, that's true of the worst thing in the world, then it's true with whatever it is that you're going through right now, I'm telling you, even though you can't see it. It's understandable. To feel crushed by the pain, because the pain is real. But you're not hopeless. And God is still a God of redemption. Jesus won the battle. It is finished. So what do you think? How can you win the battle? Well, if you think, you know, I can... Jesus gave me a good example to follow, and I can win the battle the same way Jesus did with, with a word. Um, that's only partially true, and it leaves you short of the finish line here. If you leave in here thinking you can win the battle yourself by just doing what Jesus did, you will have a rude awakening. If we see Jesus just as an example, and he's a good example, don't get me wrong, and he's an example to be followed, don't get me wrong, but if we see Jesus just as an example, we're lost, we're defeated. Thank God that Jesus is not just our example, he is our savior. He came to live the life you should have lived. His whole life was lived for God and others and trusting his father's love. The gospel is that he lived for you and he died for you. He rose again for you and he won the battle for you. And so I'm calling you here this morning to trust him, to follow him, especially when the battle is just waging at its worst. You can trust him. The moment you trust in Jesus, all of your sin is forgiven and his victory over evil becomes yours. And now he treats you like his own son. He looks at you and says, this is Justin, my son. This is Kim, my beloved daughter. God says, I am well pleased with you. I want you all to hear that this morning. God, the creator of the universe, who sustains it and works all things together for good, loves you and delights in you. He is with you and he is for you. And that's the truth you can trust even when everything seems to be falling apart. Even in the darkness, even in all the pain. God says, I am well pleased with because of Jesus, because you trust him and you're clothed in his righteousness and you're united with him. I am well pleased with you. Believe that in the desert. When, it is only when you hear the Father say this to you that you're ready to do battle with the word of God. It is only then that you're ready to live passionately for God. It's only then when you're ready to put the needs of others before your own. It's then that you will know that he loves you even when you're in the wilderness. Now listen, every Sunday... I tell you at the end of the service that I love you all. And I want you to know that I don't say that 
just uh, to be sappy or sentimental or to give people, you know, the warm, fuzzy feeling or whatever. I, I love my brothers and sisters. I love my church family. This is not just a job for me. I, I am honored to be a part of your family. I'm honored to be your brother. And because I love you, I want all of us, and you've expressed your love to me, and, and I'm so, I've been so blessed and encouraged by that. And because of that love that we have for each other that is centered on Christ, who he is and what he's done, we need to remind each other that all of life is a battle. We need to remind each other that this battle is between two cosmic kingdoms. We need to remind each other that the battle line is drawn down the center of our hearts. We need to remind each other that every day we're declaring allegiance. What will I live for? Why am I here? Who am I? We all need to remind each other to pick each other up with the truth of God. So many churches, if somebody you know, stumbles in their faith somehow, one or two reactions are popular within churches. They either shoot the person, figuratively speaking, or they you know, sweep it under the rug. One is called righteousness. The other one's called grace. It's a distortion of both. Neither one is loving or helpful. We got to lift each other up with the gospel and remind each other who we are in Christ. Not who we are if we tried enough, but who we are because what, who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Left to ourselves, we're lost. Left to ourselves, we're hopeless. Left to ourselves, we're helpless. You know, the next song that we're going to sing it's called, He Will Hold You Fast. When your faith is weak, he will hold you fast. When the tempter prevails, he will hold you fast. When you can't hold on anymore, he will hold you fast. Your Savior loves you. He will hold you fast. Jesus came to fight the battle for you. Trust in him. Put your faith in him. You have new life in him. Evil is real. But because King Jesus is victorious, you don't have to fear evil. Because the victory has been won for you in King Jesus. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me?